0: Well, this morning with this being Mother's Day, we're going to take another detour from Psalm 119 and uh, going to take a look at one of the, I think what would be considered one of the better-known mothers of the Bible, Hannah. But um, Hannah's just not a great example of someone who was a mother. She was a great example of someone who is a, just a godly woman, a godly uh, person, and who, who went through some very difficult times in her life. Now, the main scripture we're going to use as kind of a jumping off point is uh, 1 Samuel 1, 26 to 28. But we're also going to, going to give attention to things that are written all through the first chapter of 1 Samuel and then into the first, the first 10 verses into the second chapter as well. So let me start by reading 1 Samuel 1, 26 to 28. <coughs> she said, Hannah said, "Oh my Lord. As your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. These verses take place whenever Hannah uh, and and her husband Elkanah were actually talking to Eli, the priest, And they had brought their young child, Samuel, to stay with him uh, in the temple. And as you can see from the passage, Hannah has met Eli previously, and uh, she has reason to think that he will remember her. And as I look at this passage where Hannah says, I am the woman, I think, okay, what we have to do is think, okay, who is this woman? What is it that has brought her to this point in her life? what's taken place beforehand. So let's take some time just to see who Hannah was, who Hannah is. And the basic description that I would make about Hannah is your first point. Hannah was a godly woman who was loved by her husband, but patiently endured years of great distress. We see from 1 Samuel chapter 1 that Hannah's husband's name was Elkanah, he was from the tribe of Ephraim. We're also told right up front that he had two wives. Let me go ahead and read. Uh, go back to chapter one and read verses two through five. Elkanah had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man <coughs> would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. So the great trials that Hannah had and that she endured in life really start with this. So, next point is this. Though her husband loved her, he made the mistake of marrying an additional wife because the Lord closed Hannah's womb. Elkanah seems to be an honorable man, uh, one who actually took his faith seriously. That in itself was something of a rarity in these days because this story took place during the time of the judges. And the time of the judges is described as a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes. Elkanah doesn't do everything right, but... He was better than most, and it was required of every Jewish male to actually participate in three pilgrimage feasts, in other words, make a pilgrimage uh, to celebrate that feast. Those three pilgrimage feasts are uh, and continue to be the Passover, Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So once a year, Elkanah took his whole family to one of these feasts, and most assume it was probably the Feast of Tabernacles. That they would go to. (coughs) Now, this was before the Israelites had the city of Jerusalem. So, the Ark of the Covenant tabernacle was located in the city of Shiloh at this time. So, that's where these pilgrimages were taking place. That's where Eli served as priest. As we noted, Elkanah had two wives. We see in verse 2 that Hannah is listed first, but we also see that she had no children. The second wife was Penanah who had multiple children. I think it's safe to assume here, I'm going to make some assumptions, but I think, I think they're safe assumptions, that Hannah was Elkanah's original wife. But having children was such a huge deal. And verse 5 says that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. That's probably why Elkanah took a second wife. Now, polygamy, as you know, was, seems to have been quite common in the Old Testament times, but just because it was common doesn't mean it was right. It was wrong then, and it's still wrong. Leviticus 18.18, I think, is a a, a verse that speaks pretty clearly to this. He says, you shall not take a wife in addition to another to be her rival while she is alive. Pretty straightforward. I also think that this issue is part of what the prophet Malachi had in mind when he says this in Malachi 2.14. The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. On your outline, I said that Elkanah made a great mistake in marrying two women. It's probably more accurate to say it was a sin. Uh, It was a fairly common sin in the culture there, but I think it it was wrong. God did use... The practice of polygamy gave laws to protect the additional wives and the children, but it was never his original plan for marriage. So this was Hannah's situation. She was distraught because she was not able to have children, but it was made worse when a second wife came into the picture. That leads us to the second aspect of the great suffering she had to endure. (coughs) Hannah dealt with years of painful mockery from Peninnah. <clears throat> the, the climax of the pilgrimage they would make for the feast was the sacrificial meal that was offered at the feast, in which the pilgrims would rejoice together in the Lord as they took that meal at the, as they feasted. Well, as head of the household, Elkanah would divide out the portions of meat to his family. And to show his love for Hannah and to try to encourage her, no doubt, since she had no children he would make sure she was given a double portion. More symbolic than anything else. But in reality, it most likely made the situation worse. It's similar probably to when Jacob, Jacob had a coat of many colors made for his favorite son, Joseph. And when he gave it to him, it just served to make the other brothers even more resentful and even more jealous. Well, I think that's probably what's happening here with Peninnah and her children. <laughs> she was proud of the fact that she was a mother with multiple sons and multiple daughters. But her husband made it clear that Hannah was the favorite. So Peninnah became very vindictive in the way that she treated Hannah. Look at verses 6 through 8, chapter 1. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as they went up to the house of the Lord... She would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, <coughs> Hannah, do you, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So in verse 6, we see that Peninnah provoked Hannah bitterly to irritate her. It's especially highlighted that this provoking would happen on the pilgrimages to the house of the Lord. Time of feasting, time of worship. So here she was, with her family, this time of, of, of worship, and she, not just with her family, but with her fellow Jews. And she would use the time to, mock Hannah. I mean, this is just true, bitterness and hatred, that's just coming out, and it's a sad example of how bitterness and hatred can end up ruling somebody's life. I mean, it just takes over. It just takes over when someone is just kind of in the grip, of bitterness. Now, we're told that Hannah endured this year after year. We're also told that Peninnah had multiple sons and multiple daughters. So I think we could safely say we're probably looking at least five years, maybe even closer to ten years, in order to have multiple sons and multiple daughters when Hannah had none. Anyway, this went on for a long time. And it's especially difficult that the thing that brings you the most pain in life is the thing that a member of your family keeps bringing up, and actually not just casually bringing up, but mocking you because of it. But we're also given every indication that Hannah endured all this with patience. We're told she often cried. Makes sense. Get her so upset that she couldn't even eat. But there's no indication that she lashed out at Peninnah. There's also no indication that she was bitter against God. We're told twice, verses 5 and verses 6, that the reason that Hannah did not have children was because the Lord had closed her womb. Now whatever other factors may have come into play, the reality was that this was God's sovereign plan for Hannah at this point in her life. And the fact that it's mentioned twice, and especially as we get, the, the more we get a feel for the kind of person she was, I think Hannah understood this. I think this is how she would have understood it, that it's the work of God to close her womb so that she was not able to have children. And because she was able to understand this as being ultimately God's sovereign plan for her, at least at this time in her life. I think it made it easier for her to just really withstand a barrage of hatred that came toward her and to withstand it with patience. It enabled her to really walk through the most painful circumstances of her life with faith. I mean, just what an example this is. So even though she was greatly disappointed, greatly disappointed, I mean, just. You can see the grief, the brokenness that's just illustrated in just some of these phrases. Greatly disappointed what was going on. She still had reason to trust God. And she trusted him all the way through. In fact, we do know, as we're going to read the rest of the story, the Lord had great blessing in store for her. But that blessing was not there yet. It was still in the future. What she knew now, she knew that her husband loved her. She knew her rival hated her. She had no children, but she could trust God in the midst of it. So whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're single or married, whether you're an adult or whether you're a child, we all have circumstances in our life that are difficult for us, that are hard. We have things that are happening that we really can't understand what the purpose behind those things even could possibly be. But as Christians, we know that God has a purpose. It's not always revealed to us. Sometimes it is. But whether it is or whether it isn't, in confidence, and faith, we know that God has a purpose. But at the same time, his ways are often mysterious to us. I mentioned before I've been reading Stephen Charnock, and so uh, here's another thing he had to say about about that aspect of, of providence. He says, God's ways are often a smoldering groundwork, a smoldering groundwork, he says, laid for some excellent design that God is about to reveal. We see that happening often in the scripture. Things are bad. Smoldering is like something's been burned to the ground, and that's all that's left is ashes. Smoldering, but it's getting ready for a great work that's going to be happening. But it's tough sometimes when you're in the smoldering part, when all you can see is the ashes and you can't figure out what could possibly come next, what could grow up out of this. Well, that was certainly true in Hannah's case. That was what was taking place. He was going to build and do something really great in her life. And again, like I said, this happens not that, I mean, it's pretty, it's quite common in the scripture. You think about Sarah, Abraham's wife. I mean, she was not able to have children, what was, she was 75, 90 years old, I think, by the time she had her first child, she had Isaac. That's a long time. That's a long time. But then God gave her Isaac, and through Isaac, the whole nation of Israel ends up coming. Quite remarkable. So God's end goal is also higher than ours. We may have certain things we'd like to see happen in a certain way. God's goal is higher than whatever your goal might be, even if it's a good goal. His goal is higher. He has more in mind than you do. Well, Hannah had a desire for a son. She's going to bring that up here in a minute. But God intended to use him in significant ways in the nation of Israel, most of which likely was going to happen by the time her life was over. So when we find ourselves in the middle of what you might call a dark providence, we must continue to trust in the Lord. So this is the situation that was in the background of the woman who stood before Eli and reminded Eli of who she was. Well, this leads us also to our second main point. Hannah was a woman of persevering faith and prayer, persevering faith and prayer. It's not uncommon for a person to begin questioning their faith when things are not working out for, the, for them the way they would like to, or if they're going through difficult, even painful trials. It's not uncommon for people to start questioning God and start questioning their own faith in the Lord. If Hannah had those kind of difficulties, if she had those kind of doubts, we aren't told about it. Instead, we see her persevering in her faith all the way through the time uh, when she is assured the trial of not having children was coming to an end. There was a perseverance and faith that she had. In 1 Samuel uh, 1, 26 and 28, Hannah describes herself to Eli as the woman who stood beside him praying to the Lord. In fact, it seems that that, that prayer was one of the main things that Hannah used to help her during those years of great suffering. So, we know that next point on your outline is this. Hannah took her broken heart. Hannah took her broken heart and her desires to the Lord in prayer. Well, After being told in verse 7 that year after year, Peninnah would provoke Hannah, especially when they were going to Shiloh for the feast, after emphasizing the bitterness of soul that she endured, we read this in verses 9 through 18, chapter 1. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come to his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart only, and, and only her lips were. Mov- only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. so Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, "How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you." But Hannah replied, No, my lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. For I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This is the first time that we are told that Hannah prayed, that we're directly told that. But I have no doubt that prayer was a regular part of her life. When we get to chapter 2 and see her prayer, I mean, you don't pray a prayer like that just off the top of your head. That's indicating of somebody who knew the Lord and who knew how to pray. She was a woman who had learned to pray in the difficulties of life. So prayer was, I have no doubt that prayer was a regular part of her life. And in this prayer in particular here in chapter one, Hannah takes her personal struggle to the Lord. After the family has eaten together, she probably got that double portion. She's probably been mocked again, just like she had been mocked for years. She goes to the temple area to pray. Verse 10 tells us she was greatly distressed. Literally, that's the idea of being bitter of soul is what that says. And as she prayed, we are told that she wept bitterly. Another example for us from several angles, don't be afraid to pour out your heart to the Lord when you're dealing with great pain. Don't feel like you just have to hold that back and be strong. Don't be afraid to go ahead and pour those things out to the Lord. There are always things that are going to make us sad, sometimes with bitterness of soul. Use that deep sadness as a prod to talk to the Lord about what's going on. That's what Hannah did. I mean, as we've noted in past uh, times, David does this often in the Psalms. Let me give you a a few examples for you. Psalm 5, verse 1, David says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Hear the sound of my cry for help. And Psalm 6, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are dismayed. My soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? How long? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has washed away because of my adversaries. Those are just a few examples. There's many more. When we are brokenhearted, we should take our grief to the Lord in prayer, and we are confident that he will hear. Well, Hannah was in such distress that as she prayed, the words just would not even come out of her mouth. There was nothing audible coming out it says her lips were moving but her voice was not heard another illustration of just how overwhelming her pain was but this also speaks of some other some other things here this tells us that hannah knew that god, that god was omniscient in other words he knew everything he knew everything about her and she believed that he understood the things that she was praying in her heart that she was not making verbally audible She knew, she knew that God heard her prayer because he knew. In addition, it's also an illustration here of the fact that she had no desire whatsoever to make an impressive display to the people that were around her. She didn't really care what anybody else was thinking. This was between her and God, and she was open and honest and just sharing exactly what was going on in her soul and her heart. She was oblivious to the opinions of people around her. In fact, when Eli, the priest, noticed her, saw what she was doing, he totally misunderstood what was going on. He thought she was drunk, and he rebuked her for that. Well, again, he completely misjudged the situation. But in his defense, like we said at the beginning, this story of Hannah takes place during the time of the judges, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Tragically, it probably was not that uncommon for people to come drunk to the temple. I think he had seen this before. He had probably seen it a lot, and he just assumed he was seeing it again with her. But this time he was wrong. Hannah explained to him what was going on. She wasn't drunk. She was actually praying out of a sorrowful spirit, was pouring out her soul to God. She doesn't tell him what she was praying about. But Eli encourages her. This was in verse 17. He says, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. So this is what Hannah had in mind when we go down to verse 26. and She says, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. So let's move on down. What was she asking of the Lord? Well, we see Hannah wanted a son, but more than that, she wanted a son who would give his life to serving the Lord. Verse 11 tells us exactly what she prayed. She says, she made a vow, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and the razor shall never come to his head. So she begins by praising God as being the sovereign Lord. She knows that's who she's speaking with, the Lord of hosts. She then asks the sovereign Lord to look on her affliction, take notice of what's going on with me here. She says, Lord, remember me. Again, this is a prayer that David would pray often as well. Lord, remember me. Don't forget me. Now, God's not going to forget us, but it feels that way sometimes. I mean, you're probably in situations where you think it's almost like the Lord's just kind of not even paying attention to what's going on with me because I could use some help right now. Well, he didn't forget her, but in prayer, she was just being honest. Lord, remember me. Remember. Don't forget me. So in light of who her God is, in light of her commitment as his servant, in light of the fact that he knows her and remembers her, she makes a request of him. She makes a request in the context of a vow, a promise that she's making. She's asking for the Lord to give her a child. More specifically, she's asking for a son. She's asking for a son who she would then dedicate to the Lord as a Nazarite. The word Nazarite means consecration, devotion, separation, someone who's set apart. And the person who was a Nazarite was bound by vow of consecration to God's service. It may be for a specific period of time. It may be for life. Um, Hannah's making this a vow for life part of the evidence, part of them was tied into that vow, was that the hair, the hair would never be cut. So that's what Hannah's referring to in her prayer. Now, I think it's significant that though she desperately wanted to have a child, she was more focused on wanting to have a child who was a dedicated follower of the Lord. Not just a child, a child who would serve the Lord all his life. That's what she wanted. That's what her heart was. And the best way she could understand as far as what was available to her at that time, the context for that was, I'm going to dedicate him with the Nazarite vow so that he will serve the Lord all the days of his life. Well, that's what Hannah was telling Eli in chapter 1, verse 28, when she says, this is the boy that I was praying for. And more specifically, she says, "I've dedicated him to the Lord, and as long as he lives, he's dedicated to the Lord." I mean, this says so much about Hannah's own commitment to the Lord. I mean, it says so much about the things that were the most important to her. As far as Peninnah was concerned, just having a child would be enough. That's Hannah was not; she was looking at this from a totally different perspective than what her rival was looking at. That would be a blessing, of course. But as believers, our great desire is that our children would be disciples of Christ. We want to see them serving the Lord all of their life. Hannah wanted that too, and that's a good desire. That leads us to the next thing we see in Hannah. Hannah used the years she had with Samuel to both teach and model for him worshipful service to the Lord. When Eli told Hannah to go in peace, the Lord gave her peace. The Lord actually gave her peace. We read in verse eighteen that her face was no longer sad. She was confident in the Lord. So let me read for you verses nineteen to twenty-eight, chapter one. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. In verse 19, we are told that the Lord did, in fact, remember Hannah, his maidservant. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel. Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for heard of God. So it's a constant reminder that God heard her prayer. Hannah had every intention of keeping the vow that she made. But she wanted to keep little Samuel with him, with her, until he was weaned. That would mean likely was going to be three, probably pushing more towards four years old before they would take him to the temple and then leave him with Eli for the rest of his life. William J. speaks of the birth and the care of Samuel, and he makes this observation. There's a quote on your outline. He says, the birth of a child, the structure of the body, the powers of the soul, the union of flesh and spirit, the provision made to nourish and preserve life, all proclaim that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So after all the years of agony and suffering, the Lord gave Hannah a son. And William J. is pointing out this gives us reason to pause and remember what a miracle the birth of a child is. He talks about the structure of the body. I mean, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the arms, the legs, the fingers, toes, every aspect and all the internal organs and how they all work together is just remarkable to consider. And then you take into account that the child is more than just a remarkable body. Every child is also an eternal soul. Every single one, every single person is also an eternal soul. So, therefore, they will live eternally. And then there's the amazing union of body and spirit together. And that's true of all of us. Any person who lives, that has been, wo- has been woven together, body and spirit, to make us the people that we are, to make a child the person that they are. And then Jay mentions the provision made to nourish and preserve life. Well, that provision starts first when the child is in the mother's womb. And all that is all the nourishment that the child needs to grow and develop really comes through the mom, through the mother. And then he's especially, I think, focusing here on the fact of, of her breastfeeding her child and how the Lord used that to make sure that the child was taken care of. And he pulls all that together and says, we really are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is really remarkable, and it's the kind of thing we should never take for granted. What an amazing thing this is. I believe, and I'm reading between the lines here. I don't think, again, I'm reading too far between. I believe Hannah used those three, more like four years, that she had in very wise ways. I mean, if anybody knew her days were numbered with her child, she knew. She knew her time was limited she knew remember what her heart's desire was she wanted this child to serve the lord all his life she had four years what was she going to do you just can imagine things going through her mind grateful to the lord but also thinking i've got a responsibility here well obviously she took care of him physically and uh we're not going to read this, but we do know that even once she, uh, uh, they, they left him there with Eli, they would come back every year. She would bring him back a new coat every year, you know, continuing to try to kind of watch over and uh, care. And I'm sure they had all kinds of great conversation and reunion-type things every time that they had. So she definitely took, her, took uh, care of him physically. But I have no doubt that she prayed for him a lot. By herself, but also out loud so he could hear. I have no doubt that she sang hymns of praise to him. And once he began to be able to talk, singing with him. I have no doubt that she shared the story of how the Lord brought about the birth. All she has to do is talk about what his name means. Heard of the Lord. You know what that's about, Samuel? You know what I was praying about? You know what the situation was? I mean, you know she talked about that over and over. I also have every confidence that she would talk about what a privilege it was going to be for him to serve in the temple. I mean, it's hard to even imagine giving over your child like that. A four-year-old child caged yours for the rest of his life, voluntarily. But again, she wanted him to be a dedicated servant of the Lord. That was her heart, and in her mind, this was the way for that to happen. I think another way to look at this, Hannah was using what was available to her at the time, the Nazarite vow. But she also seemed to understand it's not automatic. Just because I say, okay, don't cut his hair. He's a Nazirite. Okay, you're a servant of God rest of your life, right? She knew it wasn't automatic. She was going to invest. She was going to pray. She was going to do all she could to make sure he had the best possible start that he could in those early years. Now, of course, this account, the reason this whole account is even in the Scripture is especially, first and primarily, to introduce us to Samuel. Samuel was a, a, someone that God used in significant ways um, in Israel. He was the last of the judges. He was actually the kind of the go-between, so to speak, or the transition from the judges to the kings. It was through Samuel that Saul was anointed king. It was through Samuel that ultimately David was anointed king. And he, uh, he gave wise Ruling, uh, ruling and a uh, guidance to Israel. God used Samuel significantly, and so his story is here, so we'll know who he was and where he came from and all of that. I believe his mother Hannah had a lot to do with preparing him, a lot to do, as much as, and I, I thank God, and his grace multiplied everything she did so that have a long-term A longer-term effect, and may may maybe out of the normal. It's interesting, also, to note here. First Samuel one twenty-eight ends with the phrase, "And he worshipped the Lord there." There's two possibilities of who he is. Could be Eli. Very likely, could be Eli. I mean, he's seeing. You know, I mean, he's seeing himself. You know. Here's a child, and remembering back to this woman he thought was drunk and was praying, and then, I mean, I could just see there being real worship in Eli's heart, and I have no doubt that there was, and maybe that's who he was talking about. Could it be Samuel? Could it be four-year-old Samuel who worshiped? I don't know. That's very young. I know that. I think a four-year-old can worship, in a four-year-old way, obviously. But I think that's possible. And I think there would be so much example from his mother that there would be things that that he could do that would be considered worship. So I would not be surprised at all if the one who was doing the worshiping here that's being referred to was actually Samuel. We don't know who wrote the book of 1 Samuel, for sure. We do know from 1 Chronicles 29, without going into a whole lot of detail, that Samuel was one of the contributors. So I would not be surprised to learn that he made sure the details of his birth were included in the way that he learned it from his mother. Every parent has the obligation before God to raise their child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We plead. We plead. For the Lord for their salvation, and do all we can to lead them to know the Lord and follow Him with their whole life. It's a great privilege, which also has great responsibility connected to it. And after this remarkable story is finished, the first 10 verses of chapter 2 are a prayer of Hannah. And it's this prayer that tells me for sure she was a woman of prayer. She knew how to pray. You don't pray like this unless you've been praying. And usually praying through tribulations and trials. That's how you especially learn to pray. It's when things are hard. So let me read for you First Samuel 2, 1 to 10. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one Besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. With him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills. He makes alive. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. The Lord brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he sets the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silence and darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them, he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and will exalt the horn of his anointed. So, with our last point, I want to make a few observations about this prayer before we close. Hannah's prayer is a prayer of praise and thanksgiving as a saintly mother. She speaks of God's attributes, his works, his ways, and even makes an allusion to the promised Messiah. So Hannah begins and she praises God as the sovereign Lord. He is the one who saves. He's holy. He's the rock. He knows all things. He's the judge. There's a strong warning here against pride and arrogance. His providential workings are mysterious to us. But exactly as he intends... I want you to look again at verses 4 through 8 and notice the comparisons and the contrast that she makes. All the idea of understanding God's ways as being mysterious. She's relating to this. She's seen it in her own life. She says, The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren give birth to seven But she who has many children languishes. I think there's probably especially a personal reference there. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he sets the world on them. So you can see that Hannah meditated on God's works of providence, first in her own life, but also things that she was seeing around her, seeing God does things that don't always seem to fit as far as how we would do it. Some things were complete opposites in in, in her mind or in our mind. But that's been a big part of her prayer is understanding that. In verse 9, she affirms that the one true God keeps the feet of his godly ones. So in other words, He's going to make sure that they're able to stand fast no matter what's going on, all these ups and down kind of things. He's going to make sure his, the feet of his godly ones stand firm. She, and and she, was, uh, she was praying this for herself, I'm sure, in her time of brokenness. I have no doubt that she prayed this for Samuel, that his feet would stand firm as his life continues on, as he serves Eli and serves the Lord there. But then after affirming this steadfastness of godly ones, Hannah gives warning to the wicked. They're going to be silenced. They're not going to prevail. They're going to be shattered. They're going to come under God's judgment. Look again at the last verse, verse 10. Those who can contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. <coughs> So with all that the wicked do against the Lord and against his people, Hannah closes with what she knows is sure. There's going to be lots of upheaval, but she knows things that are sure and can be depended on. The Lord is judge. Everyone and everything that's been said against him is going to be ultimately addressed all to all to the ends of the earth. And then Hannah speaks of the Lord giving strength to his king and exalting his anointed. Of course, there was no king in Israel at this time. That would take place during Samuel's Samuel's lifetime. So I think this is a reference to the king who was prophesied in Genesis 49, 9 through 10, who would come through the tribe of Judah. This prophecy would be later narrowed down more specifically to the line of David. That would be after Hannah's time, but it's connected to the same prophecy. So I believe Hannah is speaking of the Messiah, the messianic king to come. In fact, this is the first place in Scripture where the phrase, his anointed, or his Messiah, shows up. Hannah was acknowledging hope in the Messiah to come. And this is further confirmed, as a matter of fact, if you have a a Bible that has um, um, cross-references to the side, I can almost guarantee you it's going to cross-reference you over to Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1. Mary borrowed a lot from Hannah. She understood. Mary seemed to have a connection here. that She understood a lot of the things that Hannah was praying about, and she made a connection. Hannah's hope in the Lord included hope in the promised Messiah. Yes, she was a godly woman, but she wasn't perfect. Just like the rest of us, Hannah had sin in her life. She needed a Savior. Her son would need a savior. We all need a savior. Hannah's hope was the same as ours. It's by faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord that we are made right with God. And like Hannah, it's in Christ that we can live as dedicated servants of God. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for examples that you give us and uh, and women like Hannah who dealt with so many difficult things in her life, so many really hard things. And we can relate to that, maybe not to the exact same thing that she dealt with, but as we've said, we all deal with things like that. Lord, I ask that you would grant us, wherever our circumstances might be, the same confidence that she had. Help us to be able to trust in you, even when the circumstances of our life just don't seem to add up or just don't seem to be going the way we really would like for them to go. Help us to trust you, not to trust in ourselves, but to trust you that you have a good plan, and we want to be in tune with that plan as much as possible. Help us to trust you. Help us to be people of prayer. Whatever our circumstances are, we are never at the place where we can handle it on our own. We all need help. We need your help. So help us to learn more about how to pray to become very proficient in prayer like Hannah was. And Lord, also, we are reminded here that we all need a Savior. And so I thank you for the reminder we have here of the need for for the promised Messiah, for Christ. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, a prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I realize I haven't measured up. So many ways I've fallen short. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as, as my Lord. I want my life to be one that's dedicated to serving you. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note on your tear-off. For those who are watching online, can reach out to us through the website.